Have you guys in your life honestly ever had a time where you felt powerless? Like just completely unable to control the situation you're in. When I was in Ireland, I was in this situation where I felt powerless because I was in this bus and uh, it was a bus from one town to another. It's like a four hour drive on this bus. And I'm in the back, uh, Brooklyn and I got our tickets a little bit late, and I'm crammed into this bus, and it's hot, it's sweaty, there's so many people in there, and I'm stuck in the very back, and I'm wedged between like two, like just, like Brooklyn and I are in the middle, and then there's these like heavy set people on both sides of us just smushing us, and then right in front of us, there was these two girls who were like, American girls like hitchhiking through Ireland, and they were literally just talking to each other the entire time, just like, oh, mama, what do you think of that guy? Oh, he's cute. Oh, Ireland's great. Just the entire time, just talking for the entire four hours, just talking and talking. And then right as the bus started moving, a bee flew into the bus and just started like flying around and kept coming towards me and swooping towards me. And I just, I felt completely powerless because I'm like, I'm on this bus from hell. There's these two girls who won't stop talking and there's a bee. And I have to sit here for four hours hoping that the bee doesn't get aggravated because somebody swaps at it and then it comes and stings me. So that was a time where I felt powerless. Another time recently, on a more serious note, was when the fires happened. When the fires in Southern California, in LA, and in Fallbrook, and in Bonzel started like just ripping through our communities, I mean, I got freaked out because my house ended up on the mandatory evacuation list. And yeah, I mean, like it ended up being fine. Like my house didn't burn down. But in the moment, during that night, I mean, everyone in my family was freaking out. We were all thinking like, wow, we could lose our home. It was intense. I mean, in Vista, it was really bad. I could see the smoke in Vista. And then when I drove down to Oceanside to be at my parents' house, um, there was this giant smoke cloud just like in the distance. It was huge and it was black. And it was this moment where we just felt like, oh my gosh, we could lose everything. And I remember uh, my mom was like freaking out. She's like, we gotta grab all the family photos. We gotta grab all our stuff. We started throwing things in the trunk of our car and throwing things in the van. And we were just, we were, we were really worried and we felt completely out of control in that moment. Because if a fire came, it's like, what am I gonna do to stop it? Like, I have a gardening hose. Like, that's, all, like, that's not gonna really do anything against a raging fire. And in the book of Acts, we're gonna see the early church. You know, these are the guys who started the Jesus people movement. We're gonna see these guys in positions where they seem completely powerless. However, as we go through these sections, we're gonna see how even though they seem powerless, it's actually the true power that they have that comes from God that shines through their weakness. I love uh, what 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10 says. It says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also seen in our bodies. I think that just captures the spirit of this passage so much. Are you guys like feeling powerless today? In your life, are you feeling like there's situations where you can't control them? No matter what you do, you can't get a hold 
on these situations. Maybe it's things with your family and there's nothing that you can do to fix the problems. Maybe it's sins or struggles in your life or temptations that you can't seem to get away from. Maybe it's discouragement or depression or maybe there's things going on at school and you're like, no matter what I do, I feel completely powerless in this situation. If that's you, and it's been me many times in my life, to be honest, I think God has a word for you this morning. So let's get into it. Last time in Acts chapter five, here's what happened. Peter and John were going around preaching Jesus and healing people. And they end up getting arrested and thrown in jail. But an angel busts them out. And the angel says to them, hey, go and preach. Go and take your stand in the temple. So let's pick it up in uh, verse 21. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. Okay, so this is right after they're in jail, and they get busted out, and they're just right back at it. They just jump right back in to sharing the gospel, and that's what they got thrown in jail for. Like, if, if I was down in Oceanside and I was preaching the gospel and I got thrown in jail, if God busted me out, I would be like, uh... Like, I think I need, like, a little bit of a break. Like, I think I need, like, a, a vacation week to help me get through it. Um, really quick, I can't tell. Is that music? Is that our speakers? Or is that the junior high next door? What do you guys think? Okay, crazy. That's awesome. They're rocking in there. Okay. If I got out of jail, though, and I would not be jumping right back into full-time ministry is what I'd be saying. Like, I, I, would, I would be like, man, can I get some time off? Lord. Well, the disciples, they have this bold faith. Like for them, they realize that their life revolves around sharing the gospel. Like for them, remember, these are the guys who were with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They saw what Jesus did. They saw Jesus die. They saw Jesus come back. And for them, they're like, this is it for us. Like sharing Jesus with people around us, this is what our life revolves around. And they have so much boldness to go out and share because the religious authorities, right, the religious police at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys, they don't even realize that they're not still in jail. They think the disciples are still in jail. That's what the impression that they have. So they're, they're taking a crazy risk because they know that God is on their side. Let's look at verse 22. <clears throat> when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. I'm sure this reminded people of Jesus' tomb because that was a similar situation. Jesus is thrown in this tomb. People are thinking, yeah, he's dead. We're done with Jesus. We, we eliminated that Jesus problem. And then three days later, Jesus busts out of the tomb. And it makes no sense. Like to anyone watching, they're like, that, that doesn't make sense. People don't bust out of tombs. In the same way, these disciples, they're supposed to be in jail. The, the guards come and they're like, what on earth? The, the door is locked. There's guards positioned outside, but the cell is empty. Guys, I love this because it just shows that we serve a God of the impossible, a God who loves to break down walls, a God that loves to free people from prisons. Look at verse 24. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest had heard these things, they wondered, man, what is the outcome going to be? So one came and told them, saying, look, the men that you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. I love that. I mean, these guys are thrown in jail and they just brush it off 
like it's nothing. They're like, you know what? Like, we're, we don't care. We were thrown in jail. We're busted out. God got us out. And now we're going to go right back to preaching the gospel. And this brings me to my first point. My first point is that the enemy's power is gone. If you know your Bible, you know that it says that the devil likes to roam around like a lion, seeking who he may devour. But here's the thing. If you have Jesus in your life, if you've given your life to Jesus, the devil to you, yeah, he's a lion, but he's been declawed and defanged, right? He's toothless. He's got no claws. If you are dealing with a toothless lion, like, I mean, yeah, he could sit on you until you died because he's really heavy, right? But you're not necessarily afraid of that lion like ripping you to shreds or like eating you if he's got no teeth or no claws. That's the thing. And I meet so many people, honestly, who are terrified of Satan's power. Honestly, I meet so many people who are, I don't know about you, I don't know if you're terrified of Satan. Like, I don't know if you sit around and you think about the devil and how evil he is and if you freak out. There's this lady, um, this sweet, sweet lady, old lady who calls the church every week and wants to talk to the pastors. And every time we talk to her, you know what she says? She's like, I just feel like Satan's coming after me. I just feel like Satan's oppressing me. Like, I just feel like the devil's trying to get me. And we say to her every time, we're like, hey, listen, do you know Jesus? She's like, yeah, I do. Like, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I do. Well, then you don't have to worry about Satan possessing you. You don't have to worry about Satan destroying you because the reality is God is infinitely more powerful than the devil. And yeah, for someone who doesn't know Jesus, yeah, they should worry about Satan. But for those of you who know Jesus, you have the power of light on your side and light always defeats the darkness. Have any of you guys ever felt this way though? Have any of you guys ever felt just like terrified of Satan. Maybe not, maybe for some of you guys, you know, you're more spiritualistic and, and you kind of see the devil around every corner. I remember when I was uh, your guys' age, I, we went to go see this movie. It was a group of our friends and uh, we went to go see this movie about Robin Williams being the president or something and we got in the theater and we watched it for like 10 minutes and we were like, this is stupid. Like, he's the genie from Aladdin, but he's not funny. This is the dumbest movie ever. So then one of my friends was like, let's go watch a horror movie instead. So we snuck out of that theater and we went into this other room and we watched this movie called The Grudge, uh, The Grudge 2, which is about some lady who like her husband snapped her neck and she fell down the stairs and now she like haunts the stairway and like kills people. And literally after watching that movie, driving home, every time I, saw, I was like, you know, 16, every time I saw something dark in the corner, every time I saw a shadow, I was like, it's The Grudge. She's going to come. She's going to get me. She's going to strangle me to death. That's what I thought. So maybe for you, you know, you see Satan around every corner, especially if you watch horror movies and you get all freaked out about demon possessions. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe for you, you see Satan in a way where it's like, oh, man, like, the devil made me do it. The devil's constantly tempting me. The devil's constantly, you know, like, maybe you're afraid of Satan's power in your life. Maybe you see your sin you see the effects of your sin and you're just constantly afraid of Satan destroying your life by getting into your life and causing you to be tempted and causing you to give in. If you've felt this way, I wanna encourage you guys. I want you to know something. I want you to get it through your head. We have an enemy, but that enemy was defeated on the cross. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price and he, he dealt the death blow. Satan thought that he was dealing a death blow to Jesus. He thought when the nails went in his hands and when that spear went into his side, Satan thought he was getting the victory, but really the cross was the death blow to Satan. You see, guys, we still are fighting battles every day, but the war is absolutely already won and Jesus has won it on the cross. But that brings up a question. Maybe you're here today and you're wondering, why do I still feel powerless? Why do I feel like I am constantly giving in to temptation? Why do I feel like I am constantly allowing myself to get discouraged? Why am I constantly allowing myself to become depressed? Why am I constantly living in sin even though I want to follow Jesus? Well, here is something I want to encourage you in to understand, and that is the only power Satan has is the power you give him. Now, here's a question. What passage of the Bible do we see Satan depicted as a guy in red pajamas with horns and a pitchfork? Does anyone know what book of the Bible that's in? Anybody? It's not in the Bible. It's absolutely, there's no verse in the Bible that depicts Satan this way. You see, this was actually invented by people. The Bible had lots to say about Satan, God's enemy. Uh, in Hebrew, it's hasatan. Everyone say hasatan. That's creepy. Why are you saying that in church? That's weird. Hasatan, it's, it, it means enemy, okay? It's the enemy. And the Bible has lots to say about God's enemy, but it doesn't say anything about him being this red guy with a mustache and a goatee and horns and a pitchfork. That was invented by humans. Humans, uh, during the time of like the ancient Greeks, um, after Christianity, they basically came and they started coming up with their own art and their own depiction. They're like, well, we gotta figure out a way to, to depict Satan. And so they kind of spliced together a bunch of things from their false gods. So the, the image of Satan comes from like four, I think, different Greek gods. Like one had horns and one had a tail and one carried a trident. And they kind of just combined all those things together to create this image. And now, here's the thing. The interesting thing is now when people see that image, they freak out. You know what I mean? Like some little old church lady, uh, you know, if you're trick-or-treating on Halloween night and you're dressed like that, she's probably going to pass out and faint because she's like, it's Lucifer, it's Satan. That's the reality. The reality is we've given Satan power that he doesn't have. Think about it. Satan doesn't look that way. We, as people, gave him a look that he doesn't actually possess. We gave him power that he doesn't have. Now, Satan's strategy is to kill and steal and destroy. If you're saved, you don't have to worry about Satan stealing your soul. Your soul is secure in the hands of God, right? But here's the thing. If you are saved, Satan can still steal your joy. He can still kill your faith and he can still destroy your usefulness for the kingdom of God. Do we in our life give Satan power that he doesn't have? Here's what I mean. Do we give Satan power when we listen to his lies? When he whispers in our ear and he says, hey, you can't get through this year of high school unless you give in to this temptation, unless you give in to this sin. You can't get through it. You're not strong enough on your own. You're too weak. You've got to give in. When we listen to those lies, what we're doing is the same thing the people who came up with this image is we're giving him power that he doesn't actually have. We're handing over to him power he doesn't actually have. 
Remember, that's what he tried to do to Jesus in the desert. When Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus, or Satan shows up and says, hey, Jesus, why don't you turn this bread into, or this, these stones, these rocks around you, why don't you turn them into bread, Jesus? You're so hungry. Wouldn't you enjoy a nice loaf of bread? If Jesus were to give in, he would be giving Satan the power. He'd be turning it over to him, but instead Jesus says, no, Satan, get out of here. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. In our life, when we listen to the devil, we're handing him over keys to places in our heart that he does not have access to right now. And if you've done that, I want to encourage you, like, take that ground back. Say to the Lord, Jesus, help me to take back that ground from the enemy. I want to read from you guys a quote from uh, Paul David Tripp, who's a famous pastor speaker. He looks like Commissioner Gordon from Batman. He's got a legendary mustache. Here's what he says. The devil wants you to think that your life is particularly hard. He wants you to think that you've been singled out for unique suffering. He wants you to begin to believe that your life situation, location, and relationships are definitely more difficult than what other people face. He wants you to buy into the lie that while you're suffering, others are thriving. While you're being questioned, others are being respected. While your work is hard, their work is easy. He wants to get you to begin to carry around the burden that somehow, someway, you've been singled out. Have you ever felt this way? You're going through your life and, you know, you have a bad day or a bad week and all of a sudden you're like, oh, man, like everything's going wrong for me. Like the enemy's out to get me. Like I'm just, oh, like my life is so hard. This is one of the devil's main strategies. He loves to make us feel like everyone else has it better. When I was your guys' age, I was constantly looking around at other people and I was saying, man, that guy's better looking than me. That guy's more athletic than me. That guy's more charming than me. That guy's more funny than me. I was constantly comparing myself to other people, and anytime anything bad happened to me, I just was like, oh, man, like, oh, man, it's always so hard for me. This is one of the enemy's strategies. He loves to get us into that pity party mode where we take our eyes off of loving and serving others and following Jesus, and instead we just focus on all the negative things in our life. He goes on to say this. He says, why does the devil want to get you to think that you've been chosen for particular suffering? He does this because he wants you to do the one thing that'll weaken you and ultimately destroy your life and ability to be useful for the kingdom of God and serve Jesus. He wants you to begin to question the presence, goodness, and faithfulness and grace of God. This is his most powerful weapon. It has the power to hurt you and your ministry. You see, if you have come to doubt the goodness of God in your moment of need, you won't run to him because you tend not to run for help to someone you have come to doubt. Honestly, this strategy has worked on me before. Satan gets in. He causes us to self-pity. He causes us to say, everyone else has it better than me. My life is terrible right now. And then what that does is it causes us to go, man, if God was really good, then why would he let this happen? And then when we need God the most, when we've been attacked, yes, by the enemy, and we need God the most, we don't turn to him because we think, well, if God were loving, why would he even let me get into this situation? And that's such a trap. You see, guys, you have to realize it is a battle. The enemy allows Satan to do his work. He does. God allows Satan to get in and do what he does, yes, but God is constantly fighting against the enemy. Listen, 
don't give in to self-focus. When I was your guys' age, the best thing that happened to me in my entire life was when I started serving. I was so focused on me. I was so focused on my grades and my failure of a love life and how every girl I talked to thought I had rabies. Like just, you know, like I just, I was so focused on all these things that I felt were negative about myself. The best thing that happened to me was when I was 15 years old and I went to a junior high camp, not to serve, but to film. I was there to make money. They said they'd pay me $300 if I spent a weekend with junior high kids and filmed a winter camp. And it was life-changing because I was looking at these sixth grade guys who were going through the same stuff I was going through. And I realized, man, life isn't about me. And it's not that I have it so bad and that my problems are so bad. It's that the enemy is constantly working to attack everybody. One of the best things in the world for me was getting my eyes off myself. Listen, you need to realize that all the evil, think about your life, think about all the negative things. I'm not trying to bum you out, but we all have negative things. All of the evil, all of the brokenness in your life and in your world is from the enemy. You need to know this. God knows. He knows what's going on. He knows every negative thing. He knows every challenge you face, and he is fighting for you. Every day, he is fighting against the enemy in ways that you don't even understand yet. And he wants us to join him in that fight. And it is a battle. And the enemy is going to want you. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever had like a bad day. And you've got responsibilities and things that you need to do. But you're like, you know what sounds really good is Netflix and Ben and & Jerry's and bed. And you just like get in bed and like grab some cookie dough ice cream. I mean, that's my thing. At least like when I'm having a bad day, it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, I, I would love to just eat a pint of Ben & Jerry's, which is 1,000 calories. That, that's healthy. That's great, right? But whatever it is for you, when you're having those days, those weeks, those months where you're going through challenges, what we want to do a lot of times is we want to go to what feels safe and secure for us. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to fight. We don't want to read our Bible. We don't want to pray. We don't want to spend time with Jesus. We want to just relax. We want to just go through the motions. We want to just have fun. But guys, we're called to fight in this battle. And the reality is the enemy's power is absolutely gone. He is that wounded lion, that toothless lion. Guys, the fight is so much more easier when you know that the enemy's already been defeated. God has called you to enter into this daily battle, to say, and listen, I'm, I'm not, like, please don't think I'm like, if you really want to do this the right way, you got to wake up at 5 a.m. and read your Bible for 20 hours, and you're like, but then, like, the day's over. I know, <laughs> that's, that's what Christianity, that's not what Christianity is. Like, find a way, listen, let me just free you up, okay? Find a way that works for you to spend time with God. And if you are here today and you're like, honestly, I never spend time with God, I would love to find a way that works. Come talk to me. I'm not going to judge you. I've been through so many seasons of my life where like months would go by and I would never spend time with the Lord, okay? I've been there. So if you're here today, the goal is find a time, find a way in your week, in your day to connect with Jesus, the source of true power 
and allow him not just to bless you. That's not the goal. The goal of uh, Christianity, the goal of devotion time is not to like get a blessing. That's how a lot of people present it. It's like, oh, you open up your devotional and you're like, I'm going to read and I'm going to walk away with some blessing that's going to make me feel warm fuzzies today. That's not the goal, okay? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes God gives us warm fuzzies or whatever. It's not the goal. The goal is following Christ. The goal is actually to come to the Bible and come to our devotionals and open them up with a mentality of, Jesus, you are my Lord and Master. I am your disciple. I am your follower. What can I do for you? How can I follow you? How can I serve you? That's the goal. That's the battle that we're called into. Let's go back to the story. Look at verse 26. Then the captain went with the officers, and he brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. I love this because it looks like the enemy's in power, right? The religious authorities are grabbing the disciples and saying, we told you not to preach Jesus. We put you in jail. You busted out. Now you're preaching Jesus again. What are you guys doing? It seems like they're in power. They're grabbing them. They're dragging them in front of this intimidating council, having them sit down before. I mean, how many of you guys have ever been to the principal's office? Anybody want to admit that? I have. It's the worst. Some of you guys are like, well, I was related to the principal. So, you know, it was actually fun to go to the principal's office. But for the most of us, it was terrible, right? And, and, and that's what's going on. They're being dragged before this council of like old guys with long beards who are like, what are you doing, Peter and John? It seems like the enemy is in power, but check this out. Peter and John are not afraid. The enemy actually is. When they arrest them, it says the religious leaders, they arrested them without violence. They were like super delicate about it. They're just like, uh, Peter and John, can you guys please come with us? They were afraid that the people who were listening to Peter and John preach, like Peter and John are in the street, and they're talking about Jesus and redemption and the power of the gospel, and then the religious authorities come. They were actually afraid that the people would stone them. They were afraid that, like, you know, the people would be like, you guys are trying to arrest Peter and John. These guys are amazing. They're talking about Jesus. You know what? You guys need to get stoned. And there's, they, that, that's what they thought was going on. They were afraid. They were afraid. When I was a kid, um, we used to have substitute teachers um, in this room, actually, back when it was actually two rooms. There was a see that, see that little beam right there? There was a wall that went down and divided this into two rooms. So on this side of the room, we had a science class, and I remember um, my teacher, I can't remember her name, it was like Rebecca something, she was like the whitest lady I'd ever met, but she always dressed like she was from Africa. Um, it was very strange. Um, and <laughs> I just remember we would like make her cry because we were so bad. Like we just would talk. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever dealt with a substitute teacher where basically, you know, your normal teacher, like you respect them in the sense that you know that they can like destroy you. But then the substitute comes in, you're like, you have no power over me. And you just like start talking to your friends because you're like, it's a substitute teacher. We would make poor Miss Rebecca cry because we were bad kids. And we realized that she had no real power over us. That's where Peter and James, and, or James, actually, I don't know what James is doing at this point. He's probably like hanging out in the upper room somewhere. Peter and John, they are fully aware that the enemy at this point has no power over them. They've been in jail, they've been broken out, and they know that God is on their side. And these religious leaders, like their hearts are being exposed. They're, they don't fear God, they just fear men. So now they're on trial. Look at verse uh, 28. <clears throat> the high priest asked them, saying, guys, did we not strictly command you not to teach in the name of Jesus? And look, 
You've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They're so afraid. And it reveals what their fear is. Because the disciples are telling people how awesome and amazing Jesus is, and then they're constantly reminding the religious leaders that it's their fault that Jesus died. Because these are the guys who brought Jesus and said, crucify him. They're afraid they could lose everything. They're afraid. They thought that they destroyed Christianity. When they nailed Jesus to that cross, they thought it was over. But God's like, no, it's just begun. The gospel has just begun to spread. Jesus is alive and well, and he's living in his people, his disciples. And so these religious leaders are afraid because they're men of important positions and power, and Jesus and the Christianity, it's a threat to them. They could lose everything. They've built their life around them being the ones that people go to. They're the priest. If you want to talk to God, you go to the priest, right? Jesus says, you don't need a priest. I'm your priest. You don't need to go to the temple. You don't need to go to the church to pray. You can literally, in your room, sit down on your bed, and you can talk to God and have complete freedom to have access to the God who created the universe. That's it's incredible. And so for these guys, it's, it's a threat. Now, here's what's interesting to me. There's, there's some great irony in their statement. Look at their statement again. They say, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Here's the interesting thing. Months earlier at Jesus' trial, what happened? I'm going to read a passage from Matthew, from the trial of Jesus. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And the crowd said, let him be crucified. (coughs) Then the governor said, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw he could not prevail at all, but rather that a great tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You deal with it. And in verse 25, all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. Do you see the connection there? We've got the Pharisees, and they're like, why are you trying to put Jesus' blood on us, man? We didn't do anything. Just months earlier, they're standing in a crowd. They're screaming, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. it's, It's amazing to me. They're refusing to face their own darkness. We talked about this another week. They're refusing to face their own sin. What is driving these guys, okay? What is driving these men? It's fear. Have you ever been driven by fear? Have you ever been driven by your anxieties? That's what these guys are driven by. They're afraid of losing power and losing control. First, they felt that way with Jesus. Jesus shows up, they're like, oh my gosh, this new rabbi, he's saying he's the son of God. If that's true, we could lose everything. We could lose our position. The people won't need us anymore. Now we don't have jobs. Now we don't have money. Like, they're afraid. And now the disciples are here, and the same process is repeating. They're afraid of losing control. Guys, the fear of losing control is one of the biggest things that will keep you away from the will of God in your life. You don't have to raise your hands, but any control freaks here, any of you guys struggle with wanting your life to go exactly the way that you want it to go? And God is constantly trying to break us out of that box. 
He's constantly trying to say, hey, today I have something I want you to do that seems completely out of the ordinary. And he calls us to that. And so many times we turn him down because we say, no, God, that does not fit my perfect little box that I've constructed for myself. That doesn't work. And God is constantly saying, man, oh, you of little faith. That's what he's constantly saying to you and me. Not because he's mad at us. Not because he's like, oh, I hate you. I'm going to go find somebody who has more faith. No, he says this to us because he loves us and he wants us to experience the fullness of what he has. Guys, God sees our lack of faith, our lack to step out and do the things that God has called us to do as an obstacle, an obstacle in our life that keeps us from what he has for us. Faith is having the courage to let God have control. Faith is having the courage to say, God, I am going to let go of what I want in this situation. I'm going to let go of my perfect plan, and I'm going to submit to your will even though it seems crazy. Are we willing to do that today? Are you here today with an open heart saying, God, I mean, I don't know what's going on in your life. Like, I don't get emails every night from God that, like, gives me details. Like, that'd be weird. That'd be creepy. Like, no, I'm just a guy on a stage telling you what God has shown me and how this has spoken to me in my life, and now I'm throwing it out to you, and you have to figure out what does this message mean for you? What is it in your life that you're holding on to and you're refusing to let God have control? I want to encourage you, let go. The priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys were supposed to be men of God, but it was the fear of losing power that kept them from true power. That's so interesting. They had this little sliver of power, a little bit of fame, a little bit of recognition, a little bit of money, and they were so afraid of losing that sliver that they missed out on the true power. It'd be like if you saw a guy, how many of you guys like uh, cake? Any cake fans? Yeah, cake? Come on, guys, cake? No? You're sh really shaking your head at cake? Come on, cake! Okay, cookies? Anybody like cookies? Okay, all right. So universally, we like cookies, good, okay. So imagine you've got a friend who's never had a cookie before, you know? It's just like, what is wrong with this guy? And um, he finds a crumb, right? Like a little cookie crumb. And he's like, oh my gosh, this crumb is so amazing. Like, this is the best thing ever. And he's like eating this crumb, like, and he's taking such small bites that he's managing to make this crumb last like for like 10 bites. I don't know how you do the crumb, but he's going for it. He's just like, this is the best thing ever. And you're like, no, man, let go of that crumb. Let me show you what a real cookie tastes like. And he's like, no, man, I'm never giving up this. Like, this is a cookie. No, that's a crumb. That's what we do in our life. We hold on to these things that we think are so amazing. We hold on to these things where we think, this is where it's at. I've found my satisfaction in life. And God's like, hey, if you would just let go of that crumb, I could show you something even more amazing. These guys are ruled by their fears and ruled by their anxieties. And they try to spread that fear to the disciples with threats. They're like, hey, if you guys preach the gospel, you're going to be in huge trouble. Let's see how they respond. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, hey, listen, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's so good. We ought to obey God rather than men. These guys are on trial. 
They could be put to death. Like, <laughs> they're not even trying to be, like, careful about this. They're not even like, oh, yeah, like, hey, uh, we totally won't preach the gospel. Like, thanks for the warning. And then they go sneak off and preach. No, they're just like, they're bold. They're like, hey, listen, uh, I know you've got this thing where you don't want us to preach the gospel, but we got to do what God says. We got to obey him. It's much better for us to obey God than man. It's so good. It's just, it brings me to my final point. True power flows from obedience. I'll say it again. True power flows from obedience. Get this. True power does not come from within you. True power comes from Christ in you. Not from you in you, from Christ in you. I mean, think about it in the Bible. Like, <laughs> God's plans often seem insane. Most classic case, I think, is Joshua, right? Like, there's this wall, and you've got an army, and there's guys at the top of the wall who are like, ha you stupid Israelites. Like, I don't know, I'm just thinking of like the veggie tales, like the, the peas who are like, ha we throw our smoothies at you. I can't remember. I saw it a long time ago. It was a classic. But slushies or, I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, it's like you've got these guys on the wall, these enemies who are like, hey, you can't get past our wall. Like, we will dominate you. What's the logical thing to do? The logical thing is get a bow, get an arrow, light the arrow on fire, shoot it over the wall, right? Like, it just, it makes sense. Like, that seems like the strategy. Go in and defeat these guys. What does God say? God's like, hey, listen, Joshua, here's the plan. Form a marching band. Yeah, like, color guard. Go for it. Like, just grab some tubas, grab some trumpets, and march around that wall, and then see what happens. Does that sound like a good plan? No, it's like the dumbest plan ever. No offense, God, but like to us, it sounds like the dumbest plan ever. And yet, it's awesome. They march around the wall, and the wall falls down. Now, was that because they had really powerful trumpets that like had like amps and subwoofers in them that like destroyed? No, it doesn't work that way. It wasn't them. It was God's power flowing through their obedience. It was their obedience that unlocked what happened. It wasn't their effort, it was their obedience. Guys, every single one of you, God is calling you to obey in some way today. And I think if I know you, like I know me, you're probably resisting. I think every single one of you in this room probably in some way is resisting God in some way because we're humans and that's what we do. We resist. That's why God named Israel. You know what Israel means? Israel means wrestles with God. God picked his chosen people and was like, oh, you guys are fighters. Like, that's what we do. We wrestle with God. And I want to challenge you, don't do that. Submit. Say, God, I want your power to flow through me like the four. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go into Star Wars. I always go into Star Wars. I'm not going to do it today. Oh, but I should. It's like, like on Dagobah in The Empire Strikes Back. Luke was not able to lift the X-Wing until he submitted to the four. Anyway, okay, sorry. Moving on. Star Wars is great. Anyway, okay. <clears throat> so the story of the Bible is not about how you become rich or healthy or powerful. It's about submitting to the true power. I want to encourage you guys. Do the things that God calls you to do because it matters it really does. I'm going to read you guys. Um, this is a Facebook post from a friend of mine who's a youth pastor. 
Um, he says, I want to introduce y'all. I think he's from uh, somewhere, Atlanta. Uh, where, where is that? AL? What does that stand for? Anyone know? Okay, anyway. I heard voices, so I was like, oh, you guys obviously have something to say. And then you don't, so great. Okay, so <laughs> what? Thank you. Let's give her a hand. She got it. Alabama. I appreciate that. I thought you guys weren't going to give it to me, and then you did. Okay, so he's from Alabama, and he said, I want to introduce y'all to Austin. This dude is 16, and he, he and has came to know Christ as his Savior. Now, here's the cool part. He used to make fun of his friends who led him to the Lord for being Christians and leading Bible studies at lunch. Jake, his friend, was persistent and continued to lead and pray for Austin. One day in November 2016, Austin joined the Bible study that he's now leading at his own in the band at his school. And in February 2017, he was at our church where he's been with us since. He's been in small groups, serving on missions trips, and reaching others for Christ. He told me he wanted to make sure his faith was legit before he came and talked to me. We will be baptizing him in a few weeks. Jake called me this morning and informed me that this is the third student who's come to know Jesus because of his lunch Bible studies. Student ministry matters, and it's stories like these that make me thankful for the Lord's calling. I love stories like this, guys, because this is not the story of like some pastor coming in and like getting everyone saved. This is a person. This is a student, just like you a high school student who was faithful to what God called them to do. God said, start a Bible study at your school. And he did it. And now people are coming to the Lord. It's amazing. Guys, what is God calling you to do? That's my question for you guys today. In your life, and for some of you guys, maybe God is calling you to start a Bible study at your school. Hey, even if it's a Christian school. I went to a Christian school, and God called me to start a Bible study on my Christian school. I thought it was the dumbest idea ever. It turned out to be a huge blessing. For you guys, maybe it's that, maybe it's something else. Maybe God wants you to bless someone in your family. Maybe God wants you to serve in your community. Maybe God wants you to volunteer at your church. Maybe God wants you to write someone an encouraging note or a letter. Maybe God wants you to find someone at your school who's having a hard time lately and reach out to them and say, hey, you're not alone. I'm with you. Jesus is with you. Can I pray for you? There's so many ways that God wants to use every single one of you. Are you allowing him or are you just being self-focused? Does your world revolve around yourself or do you wake up and say, how can I give? How can I follow? How can I serve? These are the marks of a follower of Jesus. So in this story, back to the story, the accusers have told Peter and John to be silent Let's now see Peter's words. Look at verse 29. So Peter says, like we just read, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. I just think this part is hilarious because he literally does exactly what they don't want him to do. They're like, hey, uh, stop preaching Jesus and stop blaming us for his death. And Peter's like, yeah, I would if you weren't like so good at killing Jesus. Like that's like, he's just is constantly throwing it back out them. He's, he's saying, listen, this is your fault. And I love it. And he's not doing, he's not doing it to be a jerk. Okay, listen, there's a reason he's doing it. Look, look at verse 31. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And listen, we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, this would have felt like a slap in the face to the Pharisees because he's saying, listen, he's the prince. 
What does that mean? The prince is what? The son of a who? King, right, so good job. So Jesus is, when he calls Jesus the prince, he's saying, hey, listen, he is the son of God. That's exactly what these Pharisees did not want to hear. And then he says to them, listen, you need to repent. He's saying to them, you need Jesus. He's not trying to be a jerk. Peter actually cares about these Pharisees. Like, Peter's not just trying to, like, get at them. He's not trying to just be disrespectful to authority for disrespect's sake. No, he is literally trying to say, Pharisees, I know that you guys seem really big and powerful right now. I know you've brought us before this courtroom. I know we're standing here, and it seems like you've got the upper hand. But listen, you need to know, you need to repent. Just like us, you need Jesus. You need a Savior. It's exactly what they don't want to hear, but it's exactly what they needed to hear. He's trying to help them. In Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite scenes is when uh, Gandalf, you know, Bilbo's freaking out about something, and Gandalf kind of makes himself all huge, and he's like, Bilbo Baggins, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to help you. It's such a good scene, and it reminds me of the Lord constantly saying to me, Aaron, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to help you. There's so many times in our life where we feel like God's chasing after us and it feels like police sirens coming after us to arrest us for our sins. But really, those sirens are the sirens of an ambulance and the doctor is coming to heal us from our sins. Not to imprison us, but to heal us. Joseph Parker, uh, a guy, I'm reading a commentary by this guy right now in the book of Acts. He's so good. He says this, we've lost the proper vocation. Vocation means job, okay? We've lost the proper job of Christianity. And what is that proper vocation? To save men, not to please them, not to flatter them, but to save them. Guys, the goal of our faith is not to make people feel good. It's to save them. And when people get saved, they tend to feel pretty good about that. But the goal is not to flatter people or save them. If you are out preaching the gospel, if you're in your school and you're sharing your faith, you need to know wherever the gospel is preached, it's going to create antagonism and division. Here's what I mean. There's people who do not want to face their sin. I don't want to face my sin. You don't want to face your sin. But God thankfully got a hold of us and forced us to look at our sin for what it is and realize that we need a savior. And I'm so thankful for that. I've been born into a Christian family. It would have been so easy for me to just kind of coast and and be one of those kids who was like, oh, thanks mom and dad for having me be born into the Christian church and now I'm saved. God through my life has revealed to me how much of a sinner I actually am. And I've seen my own darkness and I see where that path leads. And I know without Jesus, I would be not the person who I am today. And I'm so thankful for the work that God has done in my life. And I'm so thankful that I have Jesus. And if I didn't have Jesus, I would not be somebody that you'd want to hang out with. I'm so thankful for what God has done. But the reality is that no one wants to face their own darkness, but they need to. And that's why it's so important for us not to go around and say, hey, did you know you're a sinner? Like, can I tell you about your sin? Like, that's actually how we shared the gospel when I was, like, in junior high and high school. We had these surveys where we go around and be like, hey, excuse me, mister. Have you ever told a lie? Okay, yeah. Have you ever ever, um, stolen anything? Yeah, okay, cool. Have you ever looked lustfully at a woman? Such an awkward question to, like, ask someone on the street and, like, what on earth? Like, so weird. Anyway, we went through this survey to like try to prove to people that they were bad people. Listen, in our postmodern age, I don't think that kind of survey is necessary. I think people know deep down that they're messed up. And I think what people need is an exposure 
to the person of Jesus and the work of what he's done. The reality is, though, I've gone out and I've shared the gospel with people. I've seen people respond to it and be like, oh my gosh, this is what I need. I've seen other people be like, what are you talking about? I don't need a savior. Get out of my face. But no matter what, when we go and share that word, we're planting a seed. We're being faithful to carry the message. And then God is the one who does the work. Here's one more thing to note. Peter says this in verse 32. We are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is so encouraging to me. Peter names himself as a witness. He's like, hey, listen, we were there with Jesus. We saw him live. We saw him die. We saw him live again. And now he's living in us. We're witnesses to these things. That's what a witness is. Somebody who's experienced Jesus. And now they go and tell others. But who else does he name as a witness? He says, the Holy Spirit is also a witness. I don't know if you've ever been afraid to witness. I don't know if you've sat through these messages over the last couple months and it's been a lot of stuff about evangelism. I don't know if you've sat here and been like, I can't do it. I don't have the strength. I'm not good with words. I can't share the gospel. You have a witnessing partner. It's the Holy Spirit. He's with you and he equips you to share your faith with people who desperately need it. So Pete Denham and I recently, we had a day here at the office where we didn't have a lot going on. Both of us kind of finished up our work. So we were talking and we were like, man, we don't have anything to do. So we were like, why don't we go get in the van and we'll drive down to Oceanside and we'll go tell people about Jesus. So Pete and I jumped in the van. We went down to Oceanside by the pier and uh, (laughs) it was really funny. (laughs) We were like, okay, who should we we go witness to? And uh, Pete saw these two little old ladies sitting on the bench and Pete was like, we should go witness to those old ladies. Uh, Because they were like by themselves, these, these two little precious old ladies. So we go up and we're like, Hey, ladies, like, and we start talking to them, and all of a sudden, their husbands come out of nowhere, and they're like, can we help you with something? And we're like, whoa, like, it's not what it looks like. Like, I don't even know what you think this looks like, but we're just trying to tell people about Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay, cool, and they leave, and it was really awkward. Anyway, we went through the day, and we had a lot of better moments, a lot of better moments sharing with people. The last group that we talked to was um, down by the pier. When you go off the pier and you head towards more of the street area, there's kind of like that overpass bridge thing. Underneath it, there was like these homeless people. Um, And it was like a bunch of like homeless teenagers and like an older guy, probably like in his 40s. And um, what we discovered pretty quickly was that like he was a drug dealer. Because while we were sitting there talking to them, what we did first was we we saw them and they had a sign that said, uh, please help us, we need pizza. And we were like, okay. We'll answer that call. So we went to the pizza place. We got two large pizzas, brought it back to them, and we sat down, and we're like, hey, here's your pizza. Let's talk. And while we were talking to them, um, skate, skater kids would skate up, and they would um, grab cigarettes from this guy and drugs from this guy, and he would give them, or no, they would give him money. He would give them stuff. They'd skate off. So like this whole time we're talking to this guy, he's like dealing drugs and like talking to us. And there was this girl with a ukulele, and um, we were talking to her, and we were just sharing. Like, we, were, we had no idea what to say. We were just asking, God, please show us something to say. Please give us a word. And we sat with them for probably about 30 minutes and just talked to them about life. We started talking about Jesus. And the girl was like, hey, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, we're tripping on acid right now. Like, we're just, we're high on acid right now. And they started laughing and just like... And Pete and I were like, you know what? We're not going to give up. And we just kept giving them Jesus. And we kept explaining to them, listen, 
I know you're high right now, but I also know that Jesus is so powerful that what he has to say is so powerful that it can pierce through your heart and speak to you. And I remember we were looking at this girl and just telling her how loved she was and how precious she was to the Lord and how God was her father and and he just adored her so much. No matter what she was doing right now, no matter what she was involved in, we were looking at that drug dealer and we're saying, man, God has such a big plan for you if you would only submit to him. And that's, that's awkward to say to somebody, to say, and we weren't, we weren't like, you sinners, repent, fall on your, like, that's not what we were saying, okay? But we, we did point out to them the reality of sin, and we did point out to them their need for a savior. And we told them, not in a prideful way, but just like, hey, listen, we needed Jesus, and we found Jesus, and for us, it's shown us how the entire world is supposed to work. It's shown us what we're supposed to be living for. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And listen, even though those guys were high, even though they were on acid, tripping, I know that God, through the Holy Spirit, spoke to them that day as we spoke to them. Because it wasn't our words, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through us. And God, his spirit was flowing through our obedience to go down that day and just say, Jesus, here I am. I'm ready to do whatever you have. The witnessing power of the Holy Spirit is released through obedience to Christ, to the word, to the inner voice of his guidance. Here's some good questions to ask yourself this morning. One, am I living consistently in line with what I know to be true about Christ? Let me say that again. Am I living in line with what I know to be true about Jesus? Two, am I living a life that is in line with what I'm learning in the Bible? Three, am I, am I refusing to do what I know God wants me to do? That's a question to ask. Am I refusing today to do something that God wants me to do or to give up something he wants me to give up or to follow him in a direction he wants me to follow? And four, <coughs> four, am I refusing to share my faith because of fear of rejection or appearing unintellectual or uncultured or any other reason? Think about those questions. Because we cannot have the power of the Holy Spirit if we're saying no to him. Let me say that again. We can't have the power of the Spirit if we're saying no to him. He'll never force his will on you. He always says to you, are you gonna say your will be done or my will be done? There's been so many times where I've said my will be done, never worked out good. But every time in my life I said, God, I want what you want, not what I want. It's always been the best thing. I'm gonna close with a story. I'm reading a book called The Divine Commodity by a guy named Sky Jatani. Weird name, but great book. Um, The tagline is Discovering a Faith Beyond Consumer Christianity. There was this part I read that was so good. I'm just gonna read it straight from the book. So Sky says this. In 1549... The Jesuit missionary Francis Xavier introduced Christianity to Japan. As the church grew rapidly to 300,000 believers, the shoguns became uneasy with the European influence over their country. So this is a similar situation to what we had here in the scripture, right? You've got the Christians coming, trying to spread the gospel, and the religious leaders, the leaders are the ones who are like, we gotta put a stop to this. In Japan, we've got a church growing to 300,000 believers, and the shoguns, the leaders of the land, were uneasy because they saw Christianity as 
European influence over their country. So then in 1641, the missionaries were expelled from Japan and Christians were required to register as Buddhists or Shintoists. Those who refused were pursued and executed. The brutal persecution cleansed Japan from virtually all Western influence. The shoguns, however, were unaware that some continued to hold their Christian faith. These were known as crypto-Christians, or kakur. Their external lives were indistinguishable from other Japanese. Catch that. These secret Christians, these crypto-Christians, their outside life looked like everybody else in Japan. There was nothing about them that let you know they were Christian. They adopted the practices, forms, and appearances of non-Christians to ensure survival. The crypto-Christians even constructed Buddhist shrines in their homes with secret compartments where Christian icons and statues were hidden. So they've got these little shrines in their house where it looks like they're praying to Buddha, but then they open it up and it's like, oh, like actually there's a cross in there. Ha ha, tricked ya. Um, so they prayed. They didn't ever say Jesus. When they prayed, they made up a fake God, a little like a little decoy god called the closet god. So they'd say a prayer to the closet god, and people didn't know they were talking about Jesus. The strategy of adopting Japanese cultural forms to mask their Christian faith continued for 240 years, but if their intention was to preserve the faith that they had been taught by the missionaries, the plan totally backfired. Over time, the crypto-Christians confused their Christian beliefs and their Japanese disguises. The result was the emergence of this weird hybrid religion, no longer adhering to the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. When Europeans were able to enter into Japan again in the 19th century, they were astonished to see communities of hidden Christians living in the hills around Nagasaki. This amazement waned, however, when they discovered that the faith of these forgotten Christians was hardly Christian at all. Although the faith followed by the underground Christians had the outward appearance of Christianity, the vital content and the spirit of the religion evolved into something entirely different. It would be more accurate to call it a folk religion altogether Japanese in spirit and content. Thousands of crypto-Christians still exist in Japan today, and at least 80 house churches continue to worship the closet god by reciting rituals in an ununderstandable amalgam of Japanese and Latin. When Pope John Paul II visited Japan in 1981, he met with the leaders of the Kakir community to welcome them back into the fold of the Catholic Church, but they said, we have no interest in joining his church. We and nobody else are the true Christians. Here's what's so sad. We've got these, these Christians, right? I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Silence. Um, it's a movie about the persecuted church in Asia, uh, starring Liam Neeson, Adam Driver, Kylo Ren, and uh, Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man. It's such a good movie. It's really intense, but really, really good. And basically, it's this movie about how these Christians in Japan were persecuted. Like, they were crucified upside down. They would take their crosses, and they would crucify these guys, and they would put the crosses out in the beach, like way out where, like, the waves were crashing. So literally, you're hanging on a cross while waves are slapping you against the face and drowning you. Um, they would tie people together and stretch them out until their arms and legs were ripped from their torsos. All of this crazy stuff is happening in Japan. And in this story, I think we're talking about the church in... Yeah, Japan. It's so sad because we've got these Christians who were like, well, it's too risky to be a Christian, so I'm going to hide my Christianity. And so what they do is they, they hide their faith by 
pretending on the outside that they're just like everybody else and then trying to still have a relationship with God. The reason that didn't work is that Christianity was always meant to be an outward faith. It was never meant to be this inward religion. Here's my question for you. Is this us? The American teenager in 2017 who is a Christian, do we hide our faith? Do we compartmentalize? When we show up to school, can people tell that we're a follower of Jesus? And please hear me. For some of you guys who are like, oh, well, I go to a Christian school so everyone knows I'm a Christian. Like I've said many times, when I went to a Christian school, the coolest kids at the Christian school were the ones who seemed like the least Christian. So for you, when you show up, when you show up to your sports practice, when you show up to your family dinner, when you show up to your neighborhood, when you show up to the skate park, when you show up to school, can people who know you, people who are your friends, people on social media, can they tell that you are a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ or have you gotten really good at masking it and having your faith being a personal private thing and on the outside you look like just like everybody else? Have we tried to blend our faith with American culture? Do we say, I love Jesus, but I also love sleeping around with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I love Jesus, but I also love pornography. I love Jesus, but I also love partying really hard. I love Jesus, but I also love sexuality and social media and everything that entices. I love Jesus, but I also love disobeying my parents because they're really out of touch and they don't know anything and it's much easier for me just to do the opposite of what they say. Is that us? Have we embraced the world and decided to keep Jesus as this separate part of our life? Have we lost our identity as radical people of the cross? I'm gonna invite you guys to pray with me in a minute. And here's what I want to encourage you again to remember. True power flows from obedience. I know I probably have been long today because there's no worship leader. <clears throat> I know that um, it's early but God wants you here for a reason, and he wants to speak to you. We don't have uh, crazy, like, loud music or light systems or smoke machines or any of that stuff, but what we do have is Jesus in this room with his spirit. I want to encourage you guys, as we pray, if there's anything that you feel like God is calling you today to loosen your grip on and let go and say, God, I surrender this to you, do it. Because not doing it is gonna hold you back. Look at these disciples, look at Peter and John. They gave up everything, their life, their family, their business, their money, their future, all to follow Jesus. They keep getting thrown in jail. These guys ended up getting killed in the end. Peter gets crucified upside down, John gets boiled in oil, and that doesn't kill him, and then he gets sent to an island where he dies, okay? This is intense stuff. You and I will probably never have to face that. You and I will probably live comfortable lives getting Starbucks and Chipotle, and like, like we have it so good. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to shame us. I'm just trying to say, you and I aren't gonna get crucified upside down anytime soon. So we have freedom. What are we doing with it? Are we living for Jesus? Are we following him with our whole heart? Or are we just going through the motions and Sunday is Jesus time and then the rest of the week it's like I'm living for me because I've got to get those grades because I've got to build up my social structure because I've got to my future all this stuff is that what we're living for the temporary stuff or are we showing up every day and saying Jesus here I am send me how can I love how can I serve how can I reach how can I impact that's what we're called to do 
to live for Christ. Because like Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Amen.